I am Citizen 44. Where are you going? To the Taj Mahal for lunch. Isn't that in India? Yes, it's in India. Going to India for lunch, mm-hmm. Mom? I'm going to India for lunch. Oh. With the Fairfax Girls. Oh, that's right. Today's a Fairfax Girls Day. What is that now? These are all ladies that you went to high, high school, school with? Uh-huh. Anyhow, I was thinking about you, and I wondered if you were just thinking about me, because we're usually on the same wavelength. Well, I'm always thinking about you in some way, whether it's consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously. I know usually when I think of you, you call or something. So I thought I would beat you to the punch, and I would call you and let you know that I've been thinking of you. Oh, that's very sweet. Hi, Judy. Mark says, hi, Judy. Hello, how are you doing? She says, hey, hello, and how are you doing? I'm doing great, Judy. Tell Judy she's on the show right now. Uh, Mark says he's doing great. And you're on the show right now. I'm on the show? Yeah. With that. that. What do you call that show, Mark? Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg. Yeah, Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg. By the way, you know the first part of her name is Jew. I'm sorry? Did you know the first part of Judy's name is Jew? Jew. Well, I call her Jude. Oh, but I know, but if you just, if you break it up into syllables, and she is Jewish, first syllable of her name is Jew. Is Jew, yeah, well, yeah. All right, and Dad's yeah. home, too? Daddy is home, too. Do you feel like talking, Norm? It's on the podcast. Uh, what do you mean, Citizen 44? Who is this? Excuse me? Are you going with them to lunch? No, it's me. Mom's uh, girls from high school. I know, but I didn't know if sometimes you tagged along or not. No, 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 not with that. The only time I go with her is when her girlfriend's going to the movie sometimes. So, let's see, they're going to be gone for at least two, three, four hours. What are you going to do? I'm going to draw straight and on my art. Bye, Judy. Bye, Judy. Bye, Judy. Bye, Mark. Bye, Judy. Bye, Mark. Bye. Okay. We're going for India. They're going. Okay, bye, girls. They're going for Indian food. Yeah, they're going to Taj Mahal. I heard they're going all the way to India to get lunch. Yes, I know. It's very nice. Yeah. You know how far it is? It's one block over. India's only a block from Encino? No. They taught the restaurant, Schmuck. Oh. It's called Schmuck? No, Schmuck is the one next door. That's the delicatessen. Oh. So there you you go. go start the show now? Yeah, I'm going to start the show right now. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44, show number 29. Uh, The guests today, Patrick Grasso in Hollywood, Jimmy Colker right here in Ashland, Oregon, beloved personality here in our town, and uh, we have Ruth Kennedy from the Equimore Foundation and Sanctuary here in Ashland, Uh, the noble effort of rescuing horses who have been mistreated, discarded, who live out the rest of their lives in in the lap of love and luxury uh, at their facility. Anyway, we got a big show, lots of things going on, and uh, it's great to be here. Uh, My life is brilliant as usual, and I'm happy. Kids are good. Hope to see my son today, maybe go get some Thai food. It's Saturday. It's a beautiful day outside. The sun is, is gone away. It was out for a little bit. Went for a walk with uh, Rich Reese after having a couple of burritos over at Ruby's. A couple of Wendy burritos. Delicious burritos in the morning. 
and then uh, a good stroll and chat, and now uh, I'm talking to you. It's good to be here. It's good to be here doing the show. It's good to just be here uh, as a citizen of the planet Earth uh, with all my fellow citizens. I hope you're having a great day, whatever part of the day you're listening in, and uh, and uh, let's let's get on with the show. Patrick! <laughs> hey, this call is being recorded for quality assurance. Oh, you're working for AT&T now, huh? I'm working for AT&T now. I decided to get a real job. I'm normally an installer on a pole, but today they let me work in the office. I knew you were a pole dancer. I am a pole dancer. I'm only working in the office because they had free donuts. Oh, but hey, man, free donuts. That's worth having the job all by itself, isn't it? Yeah. This is Patrick Grasso. Patrick Grasso wrote a book called what? Parlay. Is it done? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where is it? I wanted to have a couple people take a look at it. And um, my brother-in-law was like, oh, you got to put it in Dropbox. I'm like, okay, well, you know, just to let you know, I wrote it on an Apple computer with, uh, you know, pages. No, just put it on Dropbox. Yeah. It's so easy. Well, of course it is. I can't even believe he had to tell you that. I thought you were so, a technical guy. I didn't. No. <laughs> You're not? You're a Luddite kind of guy? What? I'm a lug nut. A lug nut. <laughs> yeah, that's yes, more I'm a lug nut kind of guy. How old was Scotty when he died? Uh, I was 39. Birthday. Well, I can't forget his birthday. His birthday is on my dad's birthday. Oh, when's his birthday? His birthday was August 19th. August 19th, okay. okay. The day that his father died. People don't know what the hell we're talking about, but a mutual friend we had in L.A. during my heyday between 1993 and 1995. The one I was born in 65. It is 44, though, isn't it? So, yeah, it was 40-fucking-4. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, welcome to Citizen 44, dude. And I, I've been thinking about that, and I was pretty sure that was it. And I sort of wanted it, of course. I wanted that to be, not want him to be dead, but wanted it to be a 44. And so it is. I remember being out of my mind at the funeral. I remember your speech was awesome. It was awesome. Um, it was an awesome speech in the heart, and there was a lot of four-letter words that yeah. needed to be said. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah, it I really think it was, was an audience pleaser. You know, the problem was... I had some ill-fitting clothes. I felt so uncomfortable. Maybe that helped me deliver the uncomfortable. I was not dressed properly. I felt like shit. Like the pants were too big and I had a belt that was fucked up and, a, and not a good shirt. I don't remember if I was wearing a tie. And I just didn't feel good. Of course, I didn't feel good about being there because why I was there and everything. I was very confident in the speech though, I must say. I knew I was gonna bowl people over with that. Only because it was the truth, that's all it was. Right, right. <laughs> That crazy, fucking, amazing, suave, lion, motherfucking, cool ass. It was just so cool that ladies just kind of dropped at his feet. I loved being in the fucking wake of his speedboat, dude. It was super fun. It was a great time of life. It was a fucking great time. Mikey, man. Where's Mikey? How's your wife? How's Johanna? My wife's good, man. Are you the only one of our friends who's married? Uh, No, Ian's married. Ian's married? Yeah, he got married. To who? Whom? Uh, dude, you're going to know her. Shut up. Who? Remember when we used to go to Palm Springs all the time? No, I remember going once. 
But yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, we went to Palm Springs. Yeah, yeah. That. Yeah, uh huh. Do you remember he was friends with that DJ, the DJ in Palm Springs? No, I don't remember a DJ in Palm Springs. I told you I only went once with Scotty. It was just he and I. I'm pretty sure. Water park. Yeah. I didn't go. Something we didn't go. Yeah. Whatever. Um, well, okay. Let me let me really digress. Bowie, Igor, and I. By the way, we're not talking about David Bowie. He didn't hang out with us. But Brian Bowie, the oh. director, sure. who fucking stole passes to the 1993 MTV Music Awards. And we saw fucking... Um, Pearl Jam. Yeah, but who was singing with Pearl Jam? Neil Young. We witnessed one I of know, the greatest live music performances in the history yeah. of yeah. music. Bowie was in some production office and saw a box of tickets, and he grabbed a handful. And then Scotty and I uh, went to the mall. We went to some, like, girls' clothing store so we can get a couple of chains and make, like, lanyards. And we got them, don't you remember? We got them laminated. That's right, that's right. Dude, we had all-access fucking pass. We were watching people actually get busted with fake shit. Scotty and I went to the trophy room, and it was on the stage. And I guess this was before the show. And uh, I think we were pretty high. And we followed Keanu Reeves out onto the stage. And we had to be pulled back. We were pulled back. At the end of the Pearl Jam performance, we actually went backstage and uh, met Neil Young. And I, I don't even know. I, I was fucking stupid. I wasn't very cool then. I, I, cool hadn't quite kicked in. I was just hanging out with cool. I wasn't particularly cool myself. And then at the after party... It grew on you. It did. At the after party... Scotty and I jumped in a limo. Somebody handed us a joint. They took us to the Universal Studio Tours outdoorsy thing, whatever that is. That's where the big party was outside. Oh, and okay. Yeah, it was a different one. It was George Clinton, and all his entourage were in front of me. I think I was by myself. Scotty fucking took off. I was on my own. Maybe that's why I didn't adventure and didn't feel confident in like being there and and I don't remember much about it, to be honest with you, other than George Clinton and the wafting smell of what, what smelled like an entire homeless community. Did I tell you the story about being in San Francisco right after I left Val and the kids for six months when I said, we are um, done? I went to San Francisco, and it was on New Year's Eve, and uh, I was super drunk. I was fucked up, man. I destroyed my friend Darren's bathroom. He kept giving me uh, shots of Absolute, and I drank the whole bottle by myself. He totally fucking poisoned me. But before I went down, I walked downstairs, and they were having a party. And I remember there was a bunch of cute Asian girls there, and that's, you know, that's my spec. But I walk into the other neighbors, and I remember this neighbor, nice lady, kind of a pretty lady with a young son. And I go in... And they're dancing, and I look on TV, and it's that fucking video where Scotty was a photographer. The Michael Jackson video. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I start crying in front Which, of these people. Out of control. Well, I'm fucking wasted. we were all in one, I can't, I think it was a Rob Thomas video, where we were all paparazzi. It huh. was too. Scotty, huh. Dave Seals, Greg Cotton, Scotty's assistant, and myself. And that was like a week or two before he died. That was our last Really? Concept. Dang. Yeah. Well, yep. yeah, well, that scene, it was shot in slow motion with Michael walking and then panning the audience. And there he is. Yeah. And then I went upstairs and I threw up all over my friend's bathroom and then passed out. 
threw up kind of like Team America volume of throw up. So let me just let my listening audience know that really honestly, I have to attribute a lot of my cool factor to Scott Kevin Lazarus. Before I hung out with these clowns for a couple of years, I was me, but not quite as cool me. You know, he was in the penthouse and I was on the first floor and uh, that's where I had my little graphic design studio right out of design school. And I used to open the window and Ben Stein would walk by with his dog and say good morning to me. Remember, I lived upstairs in the A-frame. I know. You lived in the cloud room, and there was a ping-pong table up there. This was a building, 8961 Sunset, sandwiched between the Whiskey and the Roxy on the same side of the street. And we were living in rock and roll fucking heaven for a little bit there. A year I lived there. It was awesome. Tower Records down the street, Scotty getting his fucking nails done, getting his teeth replaced. I remember the first time I saw him with his new teeth, I went upstairs. Scotty was, you know, an interesting looking cat. He carried himself well, and, but his teeth were kind of ground down, like choppy looking. And one day he decided to get himself some new choppers. And I went upstairs and he just smiled. And I said, oh my God, you're Zsa Zsa. <laughs> he looked great though. I, it actually freaked me out for a little bit, but it looked great. I mean, it was a really actually intelligent thing for him to do based on the business that he was in, was to get himself some better well, looking teeth. Do you remember his temporary teeth were like too big? For oh yeah, they face. were like chiclets. We call them chiclets. <laughs> <laughs> he was like that Curb Your Enthusiasm where Ted Danson's daughter accidentally on purpose hits him in the face with a fucking baseball bat. And then he had insulted the dentist previously by like not showing up for some kind of a dinner date so the dentist gave him a couple fucking chiclets <laughs> yeah some wilbur teeth there for a while wilbur teeth it's only a cold it's sore wilbur yeah good times yeah. man those were really super fucking fun times my god my god man yeah. <sighs> what was the thing with you and the, who are you trying to kill with the steering wheel lock was it me or scotty <laughs> what was that thing called uh, i still have that steering wheel lock what is it yeah. called though what was the name of that product? The club. The club. Yeah, the club. Yeah. No, I still am. Was it Scotty or was it me you were coming after with that thing out of the elevator? I think it was Scotty. Oh, yeah, it was definitely Scotty. Do you remember when he shot his gun and, at the, out the back door? Remember he, sh- he shot his gun, he blew the fucking light bulb out with his forty-five. <laughs> Do you remember sitting upstairs in his bedroom watching the fucking OJ chase? In his bedroom as it was happening live. He was mouthing off to some dude out of his uh, patio. Remember the huge patio he had? Yeah. The whole city. The guy thought he'd be cool and throw his beer up. You know, he threw his beer up at us. Did Scotty shoot and, at him? Uh, no, no, no. Oh. I took a I took a full bottle of beer, and um, I used to be a pitcher. It was none of that good, but boy, I hit a strike right into his ball sack. Did he? And uh, <laughs> the guy went down. That was from upstairs, you know. He, you know, it was three stories up. Yeah, penthouse suite. Down. I hit him right, right in the crotch. Oh, wow. wow. The guy went down. I met Alanis Morissette in his penthouse. I kissed yeah. her hand, and yeah. she kissed my hand. Did you go to that Valentine's Day pajama party where she was at? Yeah, she performed. I believe she performed on his back porch. Oh, my God. <laughs> she invited us. This is before Jagged Little Pill. No, I know. This uh, is before she signed with Maverick Records, with uh, Madonna's and label. Yeah. She invited, it was like Scotty and, I don't know, were you with us? No, this was a sound stage, a little stage. I went to a, I at, went to Atlantis Morissette show with you guys. I don't remember which one. 
Okay. Well, we went to a couple of them. One with, uh, I believe it was the uh, Ford Theater. That's the one I went to. That's the one I went yeah, to. Yeah, that was across from Hollywood Bowl. That yeah. Was a good show. Yeah, that this was. This one was before the album even came out. Really didn't, you know, ever hear any of her songs. And um, so, you know, they, I'm like, oh, I'll go. There's free food, I heard. And it's free of beer. Course. I got a beer in my hand. I got a burrito in my hand. <laughs> and I look next to me, and I'm standing next to Madonna. What? Right? <laughs> yeah. You're at the sound stage. She had a. Like it was the opening of her, you know, she did four cuts from her jagged little pill. Yeah. I never forget, I had like goosebumps because it was just sounded so great. Yeah. I mean, it was just an amazing, amazing, you know, uh, display of rock and roll. Yeah. And, um, you know, I even said uh, goodnight to Madonna that night. Wow, dude. I didn't know all that. Did you know that I played on Taylor's drum kit? You know, Foo Fighters, same drummer, right? Same drummer. That was her drummer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it him that came up to the cloud room, or was it yeah, the... Yeah, he was up. Yeah, they were up the cloud room. We were all sitting all huddled up, chatting it up, yeah. and smoking weed and stupid shit up there, right? Yeah. The other day, Sam had his first wrestling competition. And in case you've forgotten, Sam is 13, six foot one, 250 pounds. He doesn't have too many people he can wrestle. There's not too many people in his age category right. that he can right. legally be in, the, in, in a match with. But there was one poor unfortunate sucker that went down in about 10 seconds. Sam was so fast for moving that body. Uh, it was like a tarantula on a fucking ant. And this, this other kid was pretty big. But he got behind him and threw him down and got him in literally 10 seconds. The kid was crying afterwards, n partly humiliated by such a quick defeat. But Sam inadvertently almost broke his neck. I coached wrestling. When did you coach wrestling? 1920. I wrestled yeah. in high school, but I want to hear who did you coach, where? It was uh, my old, uh, well, my high school kind of combined with another high school after I left. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, well, I was a football coach, I was a wrestling coach, I was a track coach. But wrestling, I was seventh and eighth grade wrestling coach. And I remember I, uh, we weren't that good. I wasn't that great of a coach. Well, they, I, I was just going to say, what do you know about any of those things, Patrick? Well, it was like, you know, that's what I told the, um, you know, <laughs> the coordinator that hired me. I'm like, you know, I, I wrestled a couple of years, maybe a ninth grade. What piece of shit so school remember, was this? You know, this was back in, uh, geez, 1985. Ah. Yeah, it's years ago yeah back in the day this guy this kid he was in the middle of this wrestling match with this much better athlete and he was getting just pummeled and uh he said well i really feel like quitting my lakers and i'm like well if you want to be a quitter you can be a quitter or if you want to finish the match like a man you can finish the match like a man and uh he shortly after that got pinned and um and then he ended up having to go to the hospital because that <laughs> bad leg was broken. Oh, man. You were a I terrible put, coach. I, put, I was a horrible coach. <laughs> I put that poor kid, went out, and uh, wrestled with a broken leg. Oh, my God. That's a much better competitor. I'll tell you this, he's got my respect. Oh, I bet. Patrick lives in Hollywood on Wilton and Franklin. He's lived there how many years? 22. 22 years in the same apartment building that he managed for how many years? I managed for nine. For nine life. years. Yeah. And, and uh, behind me now. Yeah. And he still lives on the way back from Thailand. You know, I, I stayed with my parents. And I went 
and hung out for an afternoon and evening with Patrick yes. uh, in downtown we L.A. Downtown. Yeah, and went to our favorite uh, Chinese eating spot, Yang Chow's, uh, that, that Scotty and I and you. And did, did Ian used to go with us? Did Bowie ever go with Ian us? did, yes. Did yep, Bowie go did. too? Yep. My wife loves it there. That vaporizer that you gave me. Oh, uh, yeah, I gave him a little... Thank you so uh, much. Yeah, you're welcome. I gave him a Pax vape pen before I left that I had mailed to my parents before I went to Thailand so it would be waiting for me literally when I walk in the door and don't even say hello to my parents, open the box and get high and then say hi to my parents. No, that's not true. But uh, I took it with me to hang out for the afternoon with Pat and he had recently had a, a birthday. So I left him with that Pax. Probably was about three quarters full when I left it, uh, the, the little cartridge, something. I'm, I look forward to refilling it, you know, in another month or so. When yeah. Dead, yeah. It's good though, right? So far, uh, fucking great it's product. It's fantastic. Yeah. Pax, ladies and, and uh, gentlemen, PAX vape pen. It has like games on it. You charge it with a USB. I think it has <laughs> games on it. I've never looked because I don't really give a shit. I did HBO on this. I don't know if you've listened to the show recently. It, my parents and my children are, have become uh, regular players on the show. It's a great show, and I love just hearing your voice. That's very and, sweet of you uh, to say that, Patrick. You know, and, and you do a great job. I, I appreciate that, Patrick. Well, I do it for you. I'm only doing it for you, and I figured I'd call. <laughs> I needed to call you and tell you that. All right, I love you, Patrick. I'll talk to you when I talk Take to you. Take care, Marcos. You, you too, man. See you later. Ruth, I invited you here because I wanted you to be able to talk about the incredible work that you guys do over there at that place on Route 66, the uh, Equimore Foundation. Right, and our sanctuary is where, where you just mentioned over on Route 66. You've been with the foundation for how long? About six years, a little more than six years. And how, how long has the foundation been in existence? 26. Okay. It's been around a long time. And the founder's name is? Linda Davis. Linda Davis, yeah. yeah. She's a super nice lady. Yeah, she's terrific. How does your organization work? We have a group of volunteers, we have a board of directors, and we have an unbelievable staff that all kind of pull together to take care of the anywhere from 50 to 60 horses that we have on site at any time. And where typically do these horses come from? A lot of them come through intervention um, by law enforcement when somebody is called and made a complaint or sheriff's deputy has seen something and they end up being seized or... You mean because of abuse? Abuse or yeah. neglect, yeah. yeah. Some of them come through word of mouth. We take horses that have no alternatives and by no alternatives I mean they're going to die because either they're in such bad physical shape or they've been so mistreated that they've become dangerous and the answer people have for that is to put the horse down. Our most recent two horses, law enforcement had nothing to do with. They were horses that had literally been abandoned by their owners that had serious medical problems. I mean, abandoned, I mean, the owners moved away and left the horses. Left the horses left by the themselves, horses, yeah. to fend for themselves? Yeah. How did so, they think those horses were gonna eat? I don't think they cared. Neglect and abuse is more typical than anybody can even imagine. Really? It's, so, horses are intelligent, sentient, social beings. A lot of people treat them like vehicles, right? So if they want a new vehicle, you throw the old one behind the house or you park uh -huh. the old one behind the house. They tend to think about it in, in that way. They don't huh. tend to think about them properly at all. 50 or 60 currently living Anywhere between 50 and 60, yeah. They come and stay the rest of their lives there. That must be a tremendous amount of work. It's I a lot of work. I cannot even imagine how <laughs> you maintain that. It's a lot of work, and um, fortunately, our, well, we have four um, sort of horse handler, farm manager employees two full-time, two part-time. And they take care of the feeding, the turnout, 
So all of our horses have a herd. Um, it might be a herd of three, it might be a herd of 25, but that's pretty labor intensive because the horses get turned into their respective herd in the morning and then brought back in to their barn or to their, to their separate field, whatever, for the right. evening. They're just absolutely amazing. The guys take care of the property, the fencing, the lawns. Um, they're, they're amazing. And then we have kind of a small group of volunteers that does grooming, medicines, special feeds, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of work. <laughs> how, how did the organization begin? I think it actually kind of began by accident. So the foundation was started by Linda Davis, who built the facility that we're currently at as a high-end dressage and training facility. You know, many years ago, that was a big thing around here. It's not much anymore. But the equestrian part of it? Yeah. yeah. Linda has a huge heart for animals, and occasionally people would dump a horse. She, of course, would take it. So as her barn became fuller and fuller with rescue horses, and she decided to start a foundation. So the foundation essentially would pay Linda board for the Equimore horses. And then when the foundation actually purchased the facility from Linda five years ago, six years ago, something like that, we stopped taking boarders and... It's just now for rescue horses, okay. which is actually really fun. There's this beautiful, you know, high-end facility, and the rescue horses get to have the advantage of living there, which is just... Pretty cool. It's very cool. They're on, like, a badass vacation. For exactly. They kind of got into a reasonable retirement, they right? They did. It's like, a, it's like heaven for horses. Now. Right. It's like heaven. So how did you get involved? I'd done some riding earlier in my life, and I'd always wanted a horse and never had one. And I was also sort of interested in horse rescue. So when I uh, moved to Ashland, I knew about Aquamore. And I went out to see if I could sponsor a horse. So if you sponsor a horse there, you don't own that horse. But if you fully sponsor a horse, you can take lessons, you can take it out, you know, walk it around, you can groom it, and have sort of privileges as if you're sort of a special friend to that horse. And that led to um, a second horse, and then to a third horse. And then I just started to get really involved in the sort of operation and trying to figure out how to how to make it do better financially. Right. So when did you move to Ashland? About six and a half years, a little okay. over six years ago. You know, I just mm -hmm. caught on this thing because you know, uh, maybe you heard I do your graphic design. Yes. Or some of it. Yes. And uh, which I appreciate the relationship professionally too. So do we. And it seems mutually good. Yeah. I just noticed you just said special friends. Have you ever used that as a campaign? Yeah, we're always trying to find what we call friends of Aquamore, and those are people that. Sign up for a regular donation, a recurring donation. It might be all for one horse. It might be $20 a month for a bale of hay. There's all kinds of friends, right? But our campaigns are generally designed to get people to give regularly so that we're, you know, we can, we're trying to get to the point where we can pay our basic expenses through recurring donations rather than having to go out there and scrounge for donations, right. you know, all the time to, to uh, pay basic bills. Why don't you tell us? how much these horses consume and what that kind of cost alone looks like. Yeah, so um, a horse generally will consume about 2% uh, of its body weight a day. Break that down. So let's see if I can do the math. So if you have a 1,000-pound horse, that means they're going to eat 20 pounds of feed a day. 20 pounds a day a times day. 50 horses. Right, and most of our horses would be 1,000. We have some that are closer to 2,000. And ponies, obviously, the, the amount of hay they go through is smaller, but right. um, we go through about 10 tons of feed a month. 10 tons, tons a month, yeah. And if we kind of break it down, so if you took sort of our basic operating cost, which is feed, you know, hay, alfalfa hay, bedding, 
um, special feeds, which a lot of our horses are on, medications, vet bills, electricity, payroll, took all of that and divided it amongst the horses. It's about a $400 a month per horse operation. Per horse? Right. Holy cow. Yeah. That's and, an uh, expensive uh, endeavor. Yeah, although if you were a private boarder, $400 a month would be a steal at that place. And the horses, I think our horses tend to be more expensive because they're there because they have issues. Right. So they so, have special needs. Especially have special yeah, needs. Especially so. medically, right? Right. Yeah. Yep. Do you have a vet on staff no. kind of a thing? No, or? we couldn't afford that. We There's a veterinary office that we use almost exclusively. We love them. They're pretty good to us. They couldn't do it for free. They'd be out of business. They spend so much time there. Right. But we get some pretty good price breaks from our main vet. We also have an eye doctor. I forget what you call that specialty. But she's relatively new to the valley, and all she does is eyes for animals. All animals. Huh, okay. But um, we have a a whole number of horses with eye issues, and it's been really good having the ability to treat them by someone who's got an expertise in that area. Right, sure, of Um, course. But that's also really expensive. And then we have a guy who puts shoes on some of our horses. We have a couple of women that trim hooves for horses that don't have shoes. I mean, it it takes a village to provide everything that's needed for, for one of these animals. And does this community, are they fully aware of your existence? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. I think more so now than they used to be. When I first moved here, you'd ask people at Equimore and they'd never heard of it. And I think part of that was because the facility was known at that time as Eden Farm. So if you drove, was privately owned, you drove by, you'd see Eden Farm. Unless somehow you'd been connected to the fact there was a charity. There was no branding showing for Equimore. No, uh uh-uh. And there wasn't really any money for advertising or anything like that. Now, of course, if you drive out there, you'll see Equimore Sanctuary, because it is now, the horses own it. And we're doing a little more advertising. I wish more people knew about it. We're, you know, we're trying everything we can think of to get more people aware, to just get them out there. Yeah. Do you have uh, tours of the facility? Yeah. Where, so, how can people, and by the way, uh, where can people go to find out more specific information and all the stuff? Yeah, so we have a, um, a really beautiful website. It's um, equamore, E-Q-U-A-M-O-R-E dot org. And you can read about us. Every horse that we have in Sanctuary has got a page. You can take a look at them, see their stories, see their pictures. You can donate. You can contact us. We like to do tours by appointment for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is smaller is better. So if you set it one day a month, you get more people than it's you know, sort of nice to tour around the facility at any one time. And secondly, we just sort of discourage people from wandering unescorted because there's horses in motion and it's not always the safest place if you don't know what you're doing. Right. It's a beautiful area. I walked around uh, by myself. (laughs) And you also, don't you rent the space out for events? We do. People do have weddings there. We have a beautiful lawn area where we've had a number of wedding receptions. We um, have been doing our events in the big covered arena, which is kind of good you're not sure about the weather but yeah it's really pretty for you know relatively small event yeah yeah i i was there recently you had a, a fundraising event which was a lot of fun and it seemed like you had a good turnout and it seemed like people you know threw down on some money and bought things and donated and yeah we do a we call it beyond the finish line derby after party every may and we do it kentucky derby day because the beginning of May is the anniversary of Equimore being founded. This May, it'll be 27 years ago, and it's also the anniversary of us purchasing the property, oh, okay. which was really the first step towards sustainability for the right. facility. And we do um, 
you know, big hats. We have a hat contest. We have paddle raises. Um, we generally do something with the horses, kind of show people what we do. It's super fun. It's our main fundraiser of the year. We generally find if we can get people to come out and see us, whether it's through that event or through a tour, you start to get it when you meet these animals and you see their stories and you see how kind and wonderful they are or how much progress they've made. So we always like to have our events. We don't have them at fancy hotels. We have right. them at our facility, you know, in the barn, basically, in the arena. Well, I have to say, I had some pretty interesting connections with some of your residents there <laughs> and very sweet stuff, too. Yeah. Like, really, they are fully sentient beings who have emotions and feelings and can connect with people uh, quite easily, I can see. Yeah, they really can. And, you know, the horses that have just been abandoned or neglected or starved, they don't hold that against people. I'm not sure that they process mentally that it was the human's job to feed them, the human didn't, and now I'm starving. I don't think they necessarily made that connection. What about the human hit me yesterday? Those guys hold it against you. And those horses are typically very dangerous when they first come because either they've been so badly abused. We've had a couple that actually have turned sort of predatory. you got to do a lot to a horse for it to become predatory. But mostly what they are is just afraid of you, and so they want to get away from you, which means you know, they're just dangerous um, or they're hyper-reactive. Any, any kind of a noise will set them off. It's actually incredibly gratifying for me, particularly for me, those horses watching them over the years settle down and start to learn to trust people again. But it takes years. And that's the biggest thing, right? I mean, you have to regain their trust again so they can get healthy. That's right. But it's, it's really a, it's an amazing process to watch. And part of what helps them is having a herd. So most barns, high-end barns anyway, are designed to keep horses from touching each other so nobody gets a bite, nobody gets a kick. We do everything the opposite. Everything we do is designed to let horses have friends, have a herd. That's their natural environment. And you can see pretty quickly after you bring a really crazy horse out and put him in the big herd, you can see them calm down. It's that safety in numbers, of, you know, the psychology of a herd animal, and they all resort to it, no matter how they've been Then why do we separate with. them, generally speaking? What um, is the mentality on that? I think either people just aren't aware of it, or I know we've had private boarders that didn't want their horse out with the other horses because it might get bit. Well, you're right, it might get bit, because there's a lot of horse play that goes on. But um, that's just part of being a part horse. Of being a horse. Dogs exactly. bark, you know, right. horses bite. right. I mean, horse play is pretty rough. It's not something you'd want to do with them, but it's, right. it's what they do with each other. Yeah, but that's normal for them. It's They're not totally killing normal. each other. It's They're like kids yeah. horse play, and that's why it's called horse play. Right, exactly. So, anyway, you talk about that on your website? Any kind of educational aspect of you your know, theories or practices? I wish we did. It's kind of a struggle, honestly, to just keep adding more and more and more. I wish we had the opportunity to do more education. We do talk a lot about that when we do tours. We talk a lot about sort of herd mentality. But that's set it and forget mm -hmm. it information. That's just making, dedicating a, a spot and putting it in there and then it's done. And maybe have outside contributors who are horse experts who can post articles and things of that nature just to bring more people into the fold, really. You know, we're open to any ideas that help not just fundraise, but to make people think differently about horses. Well, I don't know they that they them. think about them at all until something is right. brought to their attention, really. Yeah. And that's really up to you as the person who's doing this, even though it requires another person, extra time, all these things. That outreach of uh, education is probably your best PR of, of getting people involved with uh, what's going on. I agree with that. And, you know, it's one of the challenges of being really resource limited 
and I don't just mean in terms of money, but in terms of people that have the the heart and the stamina to stick with it. it you know, Equimore is it's sort of two things at once. It's serene and beautiful, and it's a quiet place. It's almost like going to church, right? And it's also just heart-wrenching in some of the things that you see there, particularly when some of the horses come in. Or because we're a sanctuary that provides lifetime care, all of these horses die there. Yeah. So, like I say, it's, it's sort of a mixed bag, and in some respects, doing horse rescue in sanctuary is not for the faint of heart, I guess would be. Um, you have to be able to look at it. Yeah. yeah, I would love to have more people that were really deeply committed and had time to put into it. I'd like to do more of that kind of work and less what's fundraising. Your, what's your social media? Uh, you have someone doing that for you? We have a, a really robust website, which I really like. And one of my goals last year, which I think I've, um, I get an F for, but is to try and find someone to help us create content that's appropriate for social media and to know how to serve it out. Do you have a Facebook site? We do. Okay. And, it, you know, it's it's not good. We had hired a firm to, to do this for us, and it didn't go well. Mm-hmm. So, actually, this week, my to-do list has been to contact a number of people that have been recommended to me about, say, okay, Ruth, just bite the bullet. We're going to pay somebody yeah. to do this. Volunteers don't. They say yeah. they will and they don't. Get what right? you pay for, right? Right. And I'm particularly interested in Instagram mm-hmm. and Facebook and having those be sort of cross-posting. What's really important to me is I want them to understand the heart of what we sure. do. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. can they speak with our voice? So you're not a native of Ashland. Where are you from? Oh, gosh. Well, I was born on the East Coast. Where? Um, Middletown, Connecticut. Okay. But I've lived in, New, you know, upstate New York, the D.C. area, Illinois. Most recently, I moved here from the Bay Area. Okay. So what have you been doing before the horse hole thing? <laughs> um, well, I was a mother. I still am a mother. Still I'm going to say was. Good. I am a mother. Yeah. I worked, you know, for years. I was a single mom and spent the last eight or nine years being a stay-at-home mom till my kids went to college, till my okay. younger son went off to college, and then I moved here. Before that, I was a corporate and entertainment lawyer. How yeah. was that? You know, actually, it was awesome. So I was the general counsel of a company called Electronic Arts, which is one of the biggest video EA? games. EA? EA, yeah. yeah. And it was a crazy ride you know um how long did you get that ride 16 years were you there from the beginning no i was there from 1990 it was really interesting because we've always been a tough shop but there's a layer of silliness on top of that culture because of it's the games business of course but when i was there it was i think particularly fun for lawyers because the games were changing so much so when i started you know all the game noises we would just get together in a room and make the boinks and the beeps right right and the the chairman would be, you know, he was a golfer. He'd be, we'd take a picture of him and he'd be the cover of our golf game. Right. By the time I left, you actually had completely recognizable people breaking bands, actually, right. in video games. Yeah. Um, there were no clear legal rules or business conventions for how you there put a song set in a up game. There, right? Yeah. Nothing set up. No how rights, was, no, no hmm. copyright. In- nothing. For example, we did a lot of sports games. If you want to do an NFL game, you couldn't do a whole lot. I mean, you couldn't even reproduce the team's logos. So right. you just use colors, you know, and you'd call them New York. You know, eventually you end up having to do serious deals with the NFL itself, sure. with the players' associations, sure. with the stars you want to put on the cover, music that you want to put in. Which, yeah, so it was pretty fun. And then pretty soon you want real actors, right, in your games, yeah. real voice, professional voices. Yeah. So, so now you you're dealing with SAG the, and AFTRA. You got to see the transition of that It was whole super thing. fun. It was wow. super fun. Okay. Um, a very fun time to be a lawyer in that business. 
So you as a lawyer were right there firsthand with all these negotiations. It was very fun. Of getting all that licensing, right? It was very fun. Huh, that's very cool. Fun. 16 years. 16 years, yeah. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was also very fun because it was such a cool place when you had sons, right? So you could take them. I think one of my sons was a beta tester for the first Harry Potter game. Wow. You know, how cool was that, wow. right? Or you'd get to see the movies that, that we were doing games on before they were released. So you'd see Batman the day before anybody else did. Wow. You know? So it was pretty cool. That is pretty cool. With kids, you know. How old are your sons now? 26 and one's about to turn 25. How are they doing? They're awesome. Okay, good. Are they here? No, sadly they're not. Are they back east? No, one's in Seattle and one's in L.A. What are they doing? So my younger son, Jenya, is um, in computer science. He's working for a company in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And my older son, Sam, is a second-year law student at UCLA. Oh, you have a Sam, too. You have a Sam. So he's going into the law thing. Mm -hmm. Yep, another generation. My gosh, God help us, right? Is he going into entertainment law? No. Sam is on fire about prisoners' rights. Fantastic. And he volunteered. Well, actually, was a, a stipend. He had a stipend to work for the ACLU last summer in the L.A. jails, which was eye-opening for him. And this next summer, he's got an internship at the prison law office in the Bay Area, which okay. is a, sort of the premier firm that represents issues for incarcerated people. So he's doing the opposite of law that you did, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I was just doing the greedy pig, let's have fun routine. Sam's actually, I'm so proud of him, he's actually going to do good. Yeah, you know? well, you did too, in your way. I you mean, do it in different ways. Yeah. It's, when you're inside a company, you actually have a lot of opportunity to do good right. in terms of your human resources policies, your charitable giving program. How was EA about that, about giving back? I'm really proud of it because I started it, and better people than me have continued full-on charitable giving program with a oh, strong cool. mission, you know, a, a significant budget, people that they actually pay to run the program inside right. the company. They do a matching program for their employees. So, you know, I think they've, they've kind of grown up into be a responsible citizen in their community, which cool. is terrific. So how's it been being a mom for almost 26 years? Is that it? Sam's 22, was 26 right after Christmas. I mean, it's just the best thing in the world. It's the best thing ever. Where'd you have the kids? Um, Sam was born in Palo Alto, and Zhenya uh, I adopted from Russia. Oh, cool. Zhenya. Cool name. Yevgenia, yeah. Okay. He calls himself Peter professionally is he okay. was Peter Yevgenia Kennedy. At home, he's Yevgenia. Did you get him off the showroom floor? Was he brand new? <laughs> no, he was almost three. So that's been an adventure for everybody. I cannot even imagine. I mean, both my kids are adopted, but I cannot imagine adopting from out of the country. It was an adventure. I mean... Did to, you go to, to Russia? My, oh, yeah. Was he in an orphanage? Uh-huh. Huh. Yeah. It was actually... Uh, it was one of those things, it was like one of the most difficult things you ever did, but you would never have missed it for anything. Of course, you know, one of those. That's what adoption is. Yeah. But uh, Jenny was actually in an orphanage kind of at the top of the Ural Mountains. And so you would go to Moscow, and then you flew into Ekaterinburg, and then you'd get on this all-night train that went up through the mountains. It was just stunning, remarkable, different... You know, still, you'd know if there were passengers because ladies all wrapped up would be waving lanterns, you know, at the station platforms. It was really something. What year was this? It would have been, let's see, so he was born in 93, uh, January of 1995. Okay. Yeah, it was amazing. And I remember the, the gentleman that hosted us in Moscow had formerly worked in Cuba. And he was a very smart guy, spoke almost no English, but was fluent, obviously, in Russian and Spanish. And he had movies that he had dubbed over. So I remember, what was the name he of that? He personally movie? dubbed them? I'm not sure how they were dubbed. Yeah. So we were watching, um, what's that horrible movie about the venture down the Amazon? 
Anaconda? No. No, no. I mean, was, there's another one? Gosh, I hate that I can't remember that. But I remember sitting in his kitchen drinking horrible Russian wine, watching, you know, the, the music, the, the show was in English, but it had been dubbed over in Spanish. So it was on really loud, so I could hear the English. <laughs> and he's doing the Spanish. Just unbelievable, super nice guy, just an amazing experience all That's the way around. Cool, man. Yeah. So where were you growed up at? Where did you start? And my dad moved around a fair bit. So I started out in uh, Middletown, Connecticut. Was he in the military? No, he's in the insurance business. Oh, was he a door-to-door insurance dude? No, he was a you know corporate okay. guy. And uh, you know, he would get transferred. So when I was, you know, first born, we lived in Middletown, Connecticut, and then the Hartford area. And then he got transferred to Illinois. So we kind of lived out in the boondocks in Illinois, which was very fun for a kid. Like a little subdivision in the middle of farm country. Oh. If you had a bike, man, you were set. Go anywhere. I just had like an E.T. flashback. Yeah, kind of, you know, just so much freedom. It was really good. And then we moved back to Connecticut, and then I ended up in the Bay Area. He moved back there when I think I was 16. What about your mom? Same. Are they still together? Are they still They're both deceased. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're both gone. Did they stay together the whole time? They did. Huh, right on. They did. And yeah. you were married I would, or something. Yeah, at one point. Yeah. yeah. How long did you do that? Seven years. Yeah. I wouldn't have missed it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have missed it. So my dad used to say I had a sequencing problem, right? You're supposed to get married, have kids, and then get divorced. So I got married, I got divorced, and then started having children. Okay. So it does that. Well, you wait won't a be minute, able to but do you have one of them naturally, huh? Right. One of yours. Did that come yeah. from the dude? From the husband, no. Yeah. Ah, Okay. So I like that you do things your own way. I mean, I have great kids. I have the best kids in the universe. I'm just... I mean, you probably think that about your kids, too. You? I absolutely do. But, My kids are awesome. They're really yeah. fantastic. I'm, I hear people complaining about their children, and I think, yeah, well, you fucking suck. It's you that's not good. <laughs> the kids were fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, they certainly there have been challenges, but, you know, they make my heart beat. Yeah. And uh, they were both home for four or five days at Christmas time, and it was just... It was so good. That's awesome. Yeah, it's good. How did you do in school? Pretty good. Were you yeah. just like an average student? No, I mean, it was better than average. Okay. But I wasn't one of those kids who just killed myself to, you know, get straight A's or something. I did right. well enough to yeah. get into law school and well enough there to get into a decent firm and right. well enough there to get into the kind of work I wanted. How long but did that take you? I spent um, four years in a private law firm, which was hugely good for me, and then went to my first tech company in Virginia. And then a couple other tech companies in the Silicon Valley, and then ultimately EA. Okay. So, yeah. And you were I, able to essentially retire from EA? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I didn't mean to. I just, <laughs> and I stopped working for a bunch of things. You know, you get to some point where my father was dying, my younger sons had some special issues, mm-hmm. and you realize you can't manage all of these things. So I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to stop working. Never really thought I was retiring. I just thought I wasn't working for a while. And that was just so awesome not working yeah. <laughs> and I think for me you don't I didn't even realize how difficult it was doing that job until I stopped doing it and you start realizing actually you could sleep all night I mean it's actually doable you know yeah and uh, so then I just kind of never said I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom and and I did that's cool yeah and you've been able to ride that out yeah I mean there's and you're also a contributor to Equimore right yeah yeah, yeah I'm, I've, I've been lucky for sure so growing up Pretty normal, normal childhood? Yeah, I mean, I think I had a, you know, a great childhood. You have brothers and sisters? I have two sisters and a brother. How are they doing? They're all good. Okay. Older, younger? Both. 
I have an older sister and an older brother and a younger sister who lives in Grants Pass. My younger sister lives in Grants Pass. Oh, she's fairly close. So I get to see her occasionally. Yeah. My uh, other siblings are kind of far away and see them once in a blue moon. But yeah, they're good. Um, everybody's retired. I think their retirements were more traditional than mine. Well, you weren't working in a traditional job. No, and I feel like I work as hard now as I worked when I was working. No, I know how hard you work, and so uh, I know that's a huge undertaking. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it, it's so incredibly worthwhile. And uh, like we were talking before, I just wish we were better equipped to try and make ourselves be less necessary. I mean, that would be our dream, would be to not have the need for Aquamore. Yeah. And I know that's at this point, it's a pipe dream, but I sure would like to see us making some progress. And that's just educating people that's getting law enforcement to care. So the way that America thinks about horses, they actually refer to them, the thoroughbred community, refer to them as the crops. And they'll tell you the crop of thoroughbred. Horses are, are thought of in many ways and treated legally essentially like a crop. It's kind of hard to know even where to start from that, right? And from a legal point of view, they're categorized with cows and goats and livestock. And people will argue for being a vegetarian, and I'm, I totally get all that. Yeah. But the reality is cows and sheep, we have historically raised those for food. That's not what we ever raised horses for. But they're treated in the same way. So just like you can go shoot your own cow, you can go shoot your own horse. Sure. Horses have been companion animals. They're still in police departments. They've been in every single war we've ever fought. They've been our logging industry before cars and before trucks machinery, and all yeah. machinery yeah. things. That's yeah. I mean, we use them for sport. Yeah. We use them for companions. Everything. We've never considered them food, right? Right. So why we protect them like food as opposed to like any other sort of dignified creature. I think right now people think, and they're right, there's nothing bad's going to happen to me if I abuse this horse. Is there anything else that you think people should know about your organization? I guess I would just like people to know that I believe that what we do is really important. And it's important, obviously, for horses, but it's important because it's, this is going to sound really hokey, but it's really a, a massive exercise in kindness. It just happens to be directed at equines. That's kind of the, the keystone, I guess, of what we do. And you can tell just by walking around and interacting with the horses that you truly have rescued them through kindness and uh, yeah. something they were not receiving. So yeah, I wish people would come and visit us. I wish, obviously, I wish they'd donate. But even if people visit and can speak well of us or repeat some of the things they learn, I mean, that's kind of a, a baby step to changing how people think. Right. We obviously need to take bigger steps than that. But... Um, it would be nice at least if our own community kind of got it. We're taking the horses that really don't have another chance, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah. You can come and see a horse twice a week. You can you know, pet a horse. Pet a horse, give it an apple, and, and buy a bale of hay. Yeah. And if you keep it up, that relationship will actually matter to that animal. We want to do a thing about what should you think about before you get a horse, you know, because people get horses and five years later they don't want the horse. And right. what do you do? There was a book written... A, a po book of poems written and illustrated by um, Dana Fagan and, and her poet friend, whose name escapes me at the moment. A number of the animals in there are our animals that Dana right. has painted and Kat has done a, a poem about. One of the artists funded by Lloyd Haynes Grants yeah. put a beautiful mural on the outside of a restaurant in Talent. You can recognize our, I mean, it's our horses. Yeah. It's the horses of Equimore. So, I mean, I feel like the, the artist community has been good to us. Mm -hmm. 
and I think will continue to be good to us. Yeah. I really like that connection a lot. We have another gal who did a put, put together an artist for Equimore show where artists could come and show at a particular time out on our lawn, and they gave us a percentage of whatever they made. Um, that was super nice, and partly because it got people out there. Sure. What are you going to do today? What's the rest of your day look like? Um, the eye doctor's coming at 4.30, so I'll probably will go back there okay. and see how that's going. Okay. And then I'm going to hopefully Skype with one of my sons tonight. Beautiful. Be good. All right. Well, it's great to see you. Good to and, see you. Uh, I appreciate you sharing, and I'm inspired. Good. All right. Thanks a lot. Rudy. Thank you. Okay. When did we meet? How did we meet, actually? My friend Bob pointed you oh, out. Bob, Bob. That was briefly, Bob yeah, when we first met, like in 2003, 2004, but I didn't, I don't think I did anything more than say hello and right. introduce myself. But right. yeah, I'm sure it was through Alan. He always talks about what a great guy you are. Alan Hicks, show number Alan seven, Hicks. I believe he is. Right. He's a big fan. So oh, I, I just, just saw him today. Oh, nice. He bought me lunch today over at Raw. He loves that place. It's a great place. Have you not been there? I have been there a couple times, but the the, the I was kind of a little put off by the ten dollar drinks. You know, you getting a the, drink for forget those. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Those are not the bargain there. Those are okay. very expensive. What yeah. those are are those are for people who are too lazy to spend the four cents that it costs to make whatever they have in there, and they can just roll in there and have that. But their food is incredible. Have you had their food? No, I haven't had oh, their dude. food. Okay. The Yellowstone, that's what I had today. It is a fantastic, very healthy dish for okay. under $10. I'll have to give it a try. It's beautifully decorated. Yeah, so, yeah. It's a super classy operation, man. Yeah. And it actually looks in place and out of place in our town. It's so sophisticated, it looks slightly too cool for us. <laughs> yes. But I'm glad it's here and uh, yeah, Alan loves it and uh, it's good touristy stuff meaning it's it's a good thing for ashland to have here i think yeah i think I almost agree. everything they make is vegan okay. i will turn you on oh, to okay the that's right we're gonna we're gonna meet again shortly yeah we're gonna and have I'm a gonna, meal. and i'm gonna interview you okay okay you because can. i need to i need to get this gogan thing out of my system i understand okay. gogan why do you have a gogan thing in your system because I, I read that book and what's and the book i don't remember it was you know in high school or yeah, I think it was at high school. About, about Gauguin? About Gauguin, about how he drops everything he's doing and his family and his uh, his occupation. I think he was a banker. He was sponsoring Van Gogh, and he takes off to the Polynesian Islands at the age of 45 uh-huh. and uh, lives on the beach with a Polynesian woman and has a new life and paints, starts painting wow. himself. Wow, oh, like you. Yeah. So... Yeah, it was kind of the idea of metamorphosis. I don't say that I agree with leaving your family and friends, but it was, it's kind of a, there's kind of that fantasy of dropping your mundane life and becoming an artist and living on the beach in Polynesia. Okay, so what did you just say about that? You said you don't agree dropping well, your family and well, yeah, I mean, it was a very, dream. it was, yeah, it was very irresponsible. Anyway. Was it responsible to him, though? Well, I don't, you know, judge people that much. I mean, there was something that drove him to do that. Well, so, you read the book, so, yeah, didn't you? I read the book, but right. I read it 50 years ago, okay. so, you know. Maybe it's time for a revisit. It, it might be. No, no, details are good. I mean, yeah. you obviously are inspired by the story up until the point of, you know, ditching your wife and going to live on an island. Right. Which sounds pretty good, because I can actually do that. And <laughs> well, that's, that's why I wanted to find out more about your travels and your change of your, your choices. Yeah. 
So, well, and yeah. in, in your show, when we do your oh, podcast, okay. All right. which frankly is not a bad idea, you okay. have a lot of time on your hands. As you can see clearly, any idiot can do a podcast. <laughs> so, Jimmy, uh, we moved here to Ashland in the same year. Right, 2002. Yeah, and you moved from Florida area. Correct. Uh, by Correct. way of Baltimore. Correct. There was about a year um, when I was finding myself when I was about 50, I had to go find myself in, uh, where was I? In uh, Boulder. In Boulder, Colorado? Yeah, Boulder, Were you Colorado. by yourself? Yes, I was by myself. I had met Tricia, actually. Uh, we had, we, you know, we were married. And uh, I said, I got to get out of town and let me go check out Boulder. I really like Boulder. And I got this job with um, a company called American Wilderness Experience. It was a company that was kind of a starting internet, but also a catalog company with adventure travel. Uh And so I kind of, uh, I called them up because I used to book my trips through them and uh, said, hey, do you need anybody? So I sort of apprenticed myself and I spent about a year there. Doing uh, what? Actually going out to different places and checking out sites. Location scouting? It was mostly uh, ranches, mostly guest ranches because it was was more horseback oriented. Okay. It's when I decided I really liked the horse world and that was kind of a way for me to segue into two things I loved, which is horses and travel. Well, you're a so, Jew. What do Jews do on horses? Um, Not too many we, Jewish cowboys. No, I think there are a fair number. They're just kind of... I mean, didn't you see Blazing Saddles? Yeah, you that's know. a comedy made by Jews for Jews. I'm talking yeah. about real cowboys, but you saw, Jewish cowboys. You remember horses. the Indians actually spoke, uh, I think... Uh, Yiddish? Yiddish, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure they Again, did. Again, a movie, yeah. a comedy okay. about Jews as cowboys okay. and Indians that really doesn't apply to reality. Okay. And you were raised Jewish, were you not? Yes. It didn't resonate with me, so I wasn't very... You guys didn't uh, go to Hebrew school or... Uh, I was kind of a Hebrew school dropout. But you did attend for a while. For, I think, a year or two before I put my foot down. Did you bar mitzvah your foot 10. down under the broken I, glass thing? I, I did. Okay. I did actually uh, get a bar mitzvah, yes. How'd that go? Do you remember um, it? I remember it in the fact that I refused to... Re- remember everything and they had to cut a record for me what do you mean cut and, a record i mean I, I was a terrible student yeah. and i couldn't learn hebrew and so they they had to make a actual record lp record for me to memorize it was uh the yeah Haftorah? yeah yeah they, yeah they cut a record so i would they remember made a record they you? made a record for me. <laughs> no where no. is that record that's the know. record i want to hear no no it's the only way i could get through it i definitely rebelled against all that stuff didn't want to have anything to do with it what about your parents did they just let you do what they you kinda, wanted They kind of, they were so screwed up. <laughs> they didn't know what was going on. Were you under the radar uh, a little bit? I was really under the radar. How many yes. other of you were there in the house? I had a brother and a sister. Okay. Yeah, who were the opposite. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was the baby. Yeah. Who's in the middle? Oh, my sister. Okay. Yeah. She got breast cancer oh. about, uh, gee, I guess it's been about 20 years and passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, hmm. yeah lovely girl. How old was she? Late 40s, early 50s. Oh, God. Yeah. And you're how old now? You're almost 70? No, I'm 70 now. You I are? turned 70, yes. You turned 70 last uh, month? De- December 27th. Okay. Yeah. Happy belated birthday. Why, why weren't you at my party? Yeah, exactly. Okay. We, let's not go there. your own question. Let's, let's not go there. Right. So, and you have an older brother. Yes, I have an older brother. He's still in Baltimore. He's a doctor at Hopkins. Okay. And about 75. He was okay. my older brother. Who introduced me to rock and roll? You guys, so you guys had a good rapport, yeah? Yeah, we did. Okay, we did. you still do? Yes. So yes. tell me about growing up with your rock and roll older brother. What was that like, being in Baltimore in the 
early 60s, rock and roll is blowing up, and there's music everywhere, right? Yeah, that, I mean, that was really a big part of growing up. It was more the late 50s, early 60s. Right. And, yeah, I mean, I have this amazing memory of, of just listening to the radio with my brother, listening to Elvis sing Hound Dog, and watching... Uh, Ozzy and Harriet with Ricky right. Nelson, right. and music was just coming out of everywhere, yeah. and it was so exciting. And I remember following my brother around, listening to Black Slacks, and you know he was five years older than me. So by the late fifties, you know there were dances, the girls on one side, the boys on the other. And uh, was this your I'm, high school? Oh uh, uh, no, this is this is like junior high. Okay. Even. In fact, I had a big dance party. I remember for my thirteenth birthday in my basement, of and your, I had a your huge home, your family home. Yeah, huge yeah. stacks of forty fives. Listen to Del Shannon and and Dion DiMucci. How I love that now? stuff. Like thirteen, fourteen years old. Were you get any but, action back then? Thirteen, fourteen years old. Did you know what action no, was? No, I Did was. You know what girls were? I I was so little. People had trouble seeing me. Huh. So, you were yeah. a little guy. I mean, we're yes. both little guys. We're yeah. about the same size. Yeah, actually. probably. Except yeah. you're in better yeah. shape than I am, which is frightening <laughs> to me because you're. Way older than me. Oh my! Yeah, in those days, in the in the fifties, at least, my parents would send us away to camp for the summer. Like a Brandeis I mean, camp? Was it a Jewish camp? Um, I was kind of a mixed camp, but it was amazing because you'd you'd be away from the parents when you're you know ten, eleven, twelve for right. the whole summer. Right. And um, we had a sister camp across the lake. Once every two or three weeks, we would go to you know and have a dance, and there were these you know cute twelve and thirteen year old girls. You know you hadn't seen girls for months, yeah. and it was very exciting. And I yeah. think I, I even got a kiss once. I knew where I was going with it. I was so small that my nickname was the Mouse. They called me the Mouse. Ah, that's yeah. cool. That's you yeah. had a nickname. I did. Okay. You do have large hands. Yes. I noticed you have very small feet, though. What? <laughs> They're size nine. Okay. You know, my feet are still growing, which is really odd what? to me. That is not a lie. Nope. I started off as a nine. I am now about an 11. Oh, my goodness. I'm like a tulip. I, no matter <laughs> so you're hanging out with your brother in downtown uh, Baltimore? Yeah, we, we were in the burbs. We were in the burbs. But, yes, okay. it, was a great, it was a great growing up. Unfortunately, as I said, my parents were having difficulty. It was a very difficult environment because there was a lot of conflict. And Are you talking um, about between your parents? Um, What's the conflict? yeah between my parents? Uh, my my dad really struggled with mental illness mm. and uh, became very abusive and uh, was physically uh, or verbally a little bit of both. Okay, and uh, eventually wound up um, going in and out of some mental institutions. Mm. And um, I mean, he recovered and he did better, but it was a tough. There were tough some tough years in there. Yeah, and, how old were uh, you in the toughest times? Um, from about 14 to the time I went to the college. The hardest time for you to have to be able to deal with that. Yeah. Fortunately, I escaped. I hung out with my friends. You know, when I was 16, I had a car. I never was home. How um, was your mom? My mom handled it pretty well, but they kept a sort of a facade right. going of, of nice home, prominent people in the community, all that stuff. It was right. a whole, the whole thing was a show. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So that, that was a little difficult. And truthfully, that's why I think um, it was easy for me to want to not be part of that life and to do something very different and eventually wind up here in Ashland. But you did end up going into the family business, is that not right? I did. And that is the, the lumber industry? Right. The company started in the turn of the 20th century. The story I was told is that they had a little general store, my great-great-grandparents, when they came over in Fells Point from 
some town in Ukraine. They started a little general store right in Fells Point, and they had some uh, wagons, and they started making deliveries. And then when the big fire of 1904 hit, which burned down about 70, 80% of Baltimore. And this Baltimore, is in Baltimore, yeah. In Baltimore. Yeah. That because they had the wagons and some horses, they started delivering building supplies to rebuild Baltimore. And they got into the lumber business, and there were docks there where they would bring in the ships to unload the lumber. Mm-hmm. So that was the uh, that was the family enterprise that went on, and I wound up uh, taking over back in the late seventies, early eighties. Okay. So yeah. And did you do it begrudgingly, or did you have to, or was it something that you wanted to do? Well, <laughs> I was a terrible student. I was definitely easily distractible, probably somebody you, you would call ADHD today. Okay, do you think that you had some issues that were uh, not dealt with? Most definitely, yeah. I remember specifically having a great deal of difficulty just being able to sit down and, and read a book or, or study or be organized. I had all the classic symptoms. Do you think maybe that you guys were not so different and maybe he suffered like you did with this kind of disconnect? Mm-hmm. No, it's quite the opposite. He, huh. was a, he was a Wharton grad, graduated Hopkins Law School. I was a brilliant student, graduated supposedly two, three years earlier huh. than most people. And um, so, yeah, it was quite the opposite. Did you know but, your grandfather? Yeah, yeah. What was he like? He was a really little guy and very stern mm. and extremely old school, like just got off the boat and wouldn't from talk. From the Ukraine, you mean? For, yeah, well, yeah, I guess. Was but, he from but, Ukraine? No, it was, I think he came over when he was 10 or 11. Okay. He would uh, scoot us out of the house. We weren't really kind of allowed to be in the, in the house. house, no. And when we would visit my grandparents, which my mother hated, uh, we would have to go out and play stoop ball in the stoops in Baltimore. And, uh, What's and stoop ball? It's where you have a little pinky ball yeah. and you throw it against What's the a stairs. Pinky ball? It's a little... Like a like a little rubber ball, like a little rubber ball. Okay, and we would throw it against. It was like, like baseball. You throw the ball against the the steps, and it would bounce off. Right, and how far it went. Somebody you play against another person, they had to catch it and put you out. Okay, so we play stoop ball, and yeah, that's my grandparents would have nothing to do with on the Coker side. My mother's side, however, the nice German family yeah. side, they were the opposite. They were sweet and loving. It would embrace you, and uh, my grandmother was just the sweetest, sweetest lady. So your mom didn't like going to the Colker side? No, no. Because no. she didn't feel they were friendly no, people? No, no. She really did not like them at all. So did you and, have at least that kind of balance within your parents as your mom was super sweet, it sounds She like. was. She was very sweet. Yeah. yeah. Extremely sweet. And I owe, you know, everything as far as parenting to yeah. her. Yeah. But I was a, I was pretty much an escapee by the time I was about 14. So you didn't really have much of a relationship with your father? No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. How did you transition into his business? You guys must have had to spend some time together uh, in order for that to happen. He stopped working. And so I think he was happy that I was going into the business. His brother was running the business. Uh And they were very much rivals. But I think he was still happy that I went into that. And then his brother had a massive heart attack in 1980 Uh and died. They were both under investigation by the IRS. They and. Uh, for cooking the books, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And there was nobody in the family who was involved. Um, they had, I think, tried to hire a couple of managers, but they were very difficult in business and a terrible reputation. So I wound up moving into the business uh, and uh, seeing there might be an opportunity there. I became quite successful. Yeah, so and was, how long did you do that? Um, 78 through about 97. Okay. Yeah. I was a child of the 60s, yeah. and um, so I uh, was not very much of a capitalist in the sense that I really wanted to build an organization with people 
were felt valued and where they had good pay and good benefits. And right. it was a basically a blue, totally blue-collar business. Right. You know, it was also a more, a more prosperous time, too. So if you paid people really well, incentivized them, right. and respected them, at least in our kind of old-school business, you could achieve some real success. And so that's, that's what happened during the course of those years. So you were a little Jewish boy living amongst a predominantly African-American city? Yes, that's true. And yeah. was your workforce predominantly African-American? Uh, pretty much. We had a couple different locations, but at least in Baltimore City, um, it was mostly African-American, yeah. So you were yeah. there during the whole civil rights movement and maybe saw a lot of interesting transition and stuff happening in your childhood? Because you were born in when? I was born in uh, 47, okay. 1947, yeah. So you were old yeah. enough and you yeah. were aware enough to see what was happening in the country, which, of course, tomorrow is Martin Luther King's uh, birthday. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I was definitely very much pro-civil rights, and, and you know, people are people. Right. So if you just respect them and meet them where they are and talk to them honestly, I mean, this wasn't brain surgery to me, but I think it was, it was maybe for a lot of other people in the industry, maybe my parents' generation, they didn't operate that way. At least my parents didn't operate that way. They operated like it's them against us and we got to make as much money as we can on yeah. the backs of our workers. And, yeah. you know, it was a totally different philosophy. So at least in that time, it was a way to achieve pretty good success. Right. And how many employees did you have at the top of the game? Well, I think we started out a couple million dollars a year with maybe 15 employees, but mm-hmm. then I think by the early 90s, we're up to about 120 employees. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you built so, up a, a very successful business. Mm-hmm. Yes, it did. And then uh, what what was the bottom that fell out? Well, the uh, there was a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on throughout the late 80s, early 90s. And by um, mid-90s, the big boxes like Lowe's and Home Depot right. started setting up contractor yards, which was our niche. We right. just were contractor yards. And they initiated predatory pricing where they basically sold products below our cost. Right. And so within a year, we were out of business. So it was, it was pretty awful. Yeah, there was and, no place for you to go, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And as I think I mentioned before, actually, I had sort of a crisis, obviously, because all of a sudden at 50 years old, after having some success, I had to start all over. And, and you put some and, money away or anything? Well, unfortunately, I'm not going to get into it too much, but most of what I had was in stock in the company. Right. And because I had to buy out the previous stockholders. Right. So when the company failed, I pretty much lost everything yeah. and started over. Right. I had some small savings. But uh, what was really discouraging and disappointing, and, and I really went through a tremendous depression, was that nobody wanted me. It's like I went to these various companies that were, you know, had taken over the industry mm-hmm. and uh, thinking, gee, I really built up this business for 25 years and I really knew what I was doing. I knew everything about the business and nobody wanted to talk to me. So, um, so I had to start over. And actually that was the, that was when I was thinking, what do I really like to do? And I was thinking, you know, I really like horses and I I really like ranches. And, um, it was kind of the grass is greener thing here. I am in Baltimore. And, uh, and I, I went to, uh, actually looked at guest ranches for about a year I traveled around. It was more like six months, uh, thinking that maybe I'd get into that business. Right. And uh, even though I knew nothing about it, there was an actual class you could take on owning and operating guest ranches by the Dude Ranch Association. Huh. After going around Colorado and 
in Wyoming and looking at all these ranches, you know, unless you inherit one, you can't make a living. After the business closed in 97, I started over kind of at the bottom with um, with an education company called Sylvan Learning Systems. Oh, yeah. I knew the they Beckers. They were very popular in the 80s, weren't they, in 90s? 80s and 90s, yeah. yeah. And they were getting into all kinds of other things, like video conferencing right. and things like that, and also SAT prep. And, right. and so I taught two years right out of college, middle school. So they were looking for people with a business background who also had a little bit of education background. What did you get a degree in? I actually got a master's in American studies. Oh, okay. But I, at that time, you could go teach, provided you went to night school to get an education degree. Okay. And you could still teach because there was a shortage of teachers in southern PA where I'd moved to. But I was a terrible teacher. And oh, I you were a terrible a, student, too. I was a terrible someone student. someone who was a terrible student and teacher... You ended up becoming a teacher. Well, I BSed my way through all of it. I had the gift of gab. I could write. But uh, I became a little more disciplined in my business career. And they had an opening in Boca to run one of the centers there. So I went down there and turned it around quickly. It was not making money. And it took me about six months. And then they sent me to the largest center in the United States, which was Davie, Florida, which is Fort Lauderdale. And uh, really did well with that. Why didn't you stay with the company? I never worked for anybody before, especially a big corporation. Yeah. It was hard for me to not be in charge. Okay, I'm, I see. I was used to being in charge. Yeah, <laughs> so but other people were making decisions. Other people were making I liked it. I must yeah. say, I liked it. I felt like I was on vacation all the time because I wasn't responsible for making payroll. I wasn't responsible right. for every... The hardest part. Every, every, yeah, all the, all the, you know, if somebody was unhappy, I wasn't responsible yeah. for everything. I really thought I was on vacation. It was yeah. so amazing. And I could work like 45, 50 hours a week instead of 60 or 70. Right. And I didn't take it home. Right. People don't understand when you work for yourself in a mid-sized business or, you know, most of those people, they're working hard and they're, it can be very stressful. Yeah. Did you just quit? Yes. Yes, Did you quit knowing you were leaving, moving? Well, I quit because I visited here. I visited Ashland when? and uh, in 99. My wife's sister had moved here with her family. And I visited here and just fell in love. When did yeah. you meet Trish? Uh, 1988 or 1989. Okay, and when yeah. did you get married? In 1990. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. And uh, so, yeah, uh, they had moved here from Connecticut. had only been here a couple of years. Yeah. And I just loved the valley, the mountains, just the small town atmosphere. I've always lived in big cities with lots of concrete, uh, which describes where I was in Boca very well and right. in the suburbs in Baltimore. And this just kind of drew me. And uh, it's proved to be a wonderful move. And why did it take you two years? Well, we visited a couple more times before okay. we decided. But we decided and moved here within you know, maybe a three-month period. So that's when I quit at Sylvan and just came out here. And what did you do when you got here? Well, I still had to work, and uh, so we started a spa and salon because my wife had experience in that. And that's Blue Giraffe. The Blue Giraffe Spa and Salon. Which is uh, a staple of the community. It's been here as long as I remember. I mean, I know you just got here when I did, but I don't remember it not being here. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So you started it pretty soon after you got here. Oh, yeah. We started right away. I had to make a living. Yeah. Yeah. Was that the original location? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a great Down location. On Water Street. Yeah, it's a beautiful spot. This was Trisha's business, not right, yours. Right, She right. wanted to do it. Yes, but, yes. But she couldn't do it for long. Right. She became ill about 10 years ago. She got a very um, chronic and sudden um, autoimmune disease called interstitial cystitis. And she became unable to work. 
but she was instrumental in the startup. It was her design. It was her everything. Right. So I was kind of the back room guy doing the business administration, right. the marketing, the bookkeeping, the advertising, that kind of stuff. So once she could not operate anymore, you were all hands on deck, right? Yeah. I mean, not that you were cutting hair and painting toenails, but right. I mean, you were in there, you and all the girls, and you, you guys were providing all the service. Yes, yes. But I was still running the administrative right. part of the business. I right. wasn't, I never... But you were also the face, though, now, of the company. Well, I was the face in terms of marketing, but um, I always had a front-end, you know, manager right. or somebody, operations person. Right, so, right. And I've, you know, photographed many weddings and have followed brides into your place. It's a very cool place. Yeah, it's very beautiful. Pretty. It is. Yeah. It's very pretty. Yeah. Pretty things happen there. Pretty girls work there. It's a good vibe, good energy. So, yeah, yeah good job, man. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, and are you glad now to be semi disassociated with all that? Yeah, I'm not working. That's I'm what not I mean. doing not it. Working. Yep, and I'm I'm glad because uh, at 70, I, I, what do they call that? The Peter Principle. What you does reach that mean? your you reach your level of incompetence. Oh, you know, you're, you're, is it Peter out? Uh, oh. No, no, no. Where was it? There was a book famous by Drucker called The Peter Principle. It was kind of you rise to the level of your own incompetence, where oh. you rise to the point where you. You hit a wall, and uh, it has to do with younger people and technology uh, and being adept and, you know. Okay, so you're a young guy living in Baltimore in the Burbs, and your dad is working the, the lumber business. And what's your mom doing? She just, just she's a, a stay-at-home mom? Yep, just a housewife. Yep. Okay. Yep, country so, club housewife. And if you weren't doing well in school, what were you doing? I was uh, doing what teenagers do, cars, girls. Yeah. You know, there was no music. drugs at the time, so you know we just really? drank. Was there nothing? Nobody was doing anything. No, no, the no. Musicians no. must have been doing something. Well, this is the early '60s, you know. But right. yeah, the musicians were doing stuff, but right. it wasn't. Uh, the kids were getting high back then. No, they would drink. We would uh, ra- we would ra- oh alcohol. Okay. Yeah, alcohol was raging back then. So then, so. when did you start seeing a change in the culture where drugs were starting to permeate into uh, the education system? Well, I, I graduated in uh, 66, so I went to college in 67, and by 68, things were changing. People okay. were growing their hair long, we were listening to Dylan, you know, Cream, the Beatles, everything right. was happening. And the war and, was blaring. And the war was blaring, and things changed very rapidly. Marijuana, acid, mushrooms, everything hits the college campuses. Why do you think at the same time, that's kind of interesting, that we were in this incredibly disgusting conflict and at the same time, all these things were starting to bubble to the surface that had never shown up before. It was a big culture shift where, you know, the baby boomers were moving into early adulthood. Right. And we were rejecting all those what we call puritanical norms that were really covering up and keeping everything down as far, right. as, as, far as true feelings and true emotions and right. true expressions. The truth. So, yeah, so, yeah. The, you know, the counterculture. I was very much caught up in that whole change that was happening. Did you and become was, an activist? I was very active. In what uh, way? Well, I joined uh, SDS. Well, what is <laughs> I protested. Oh, it was a kind of a radical group fighting the war in Vietnam. Okay. And I think I joined for about two months because I didn't want to do anything that was violent or harmful. Right. Some of them got very uh, out there. No, it was the Nixon years. It was uh, actually one of my most vivid memories was in 1970, uh, Nixon bombed Cambodia. Yeah. And, you know, we'd already killed a couple million Vietnamese. The students got together and we sat down in the middle of the main street in Cleveland, Ohio, went to school, mm-hmm. Case Western Reserve University, and stopped all the traffic in the middle of the day How's as a protest. Feel? 
it was amazing. But what was really interesting was after sitting in the middle of the street tying up the main road in downtown Cleveland, first there was a phalanx of police that came, maybe 100 policemen, and then behind them was the National Guard. And then actually behind the police were the mounted police. On horses? And, on horses. Yeah. And... Uh, we sat there for maybe three or four hours singing and doing all that stuff that, right. you know, us hippies did back right. then. And then they, the police turned their badges over so you couldn't identify them and charged with the mounted police. The National Guard stayed back. And did they just and come at you with batons? They and... came at with us batons and clubbed a lot of people, a lot of oh. my friends. And I'll never forget running towards our student union going up this flight of steps. And the mounted police came up the steps after me you know, swinging their batons, right. and I just barely made it wow. into the into the student union. But as I recall, I think they broke the glass to the to the door wow. too. They, it was uh, it was really amazing. That's but uh, but we shut down the university. Was this before and or after Kent State? This was after Kent State. Okay. Kent State, I think, happened maybe either six months or a year before, okay. which was only about thirty miles down the road. Right. And yeah, so it was it was really uh, quite quite the time as far as uh, protesting the war and also the counterculture. You know, I I had all the accoutrements that went with being a counterculture person. So what, uh, what are those accoutrements? Uh, oh, I had really long hair and a long beard. And, you know, had all the clothes. I can't even imagine you with long hair yeah, and a yeah. long beard. Oh yeah, huh. yeah. It was the worst of times and the best of times. Yeah, well, I think it's always that. Well, the country was really divided then, and there was a lot of violence. And there was, you know, civil unrest. There was uh, the war. I mean, I had friends that went and came back as vegetables. How did you and, escape that? Well, I was an ardent anti-Vietnam protester and radical and all this but stuff. Did you but, register but, as a? Well, I I realized that if I, uh, and this is, it's a little shameful, but if I uh, feigned mental illness and dropped some acid and went to the board, is that I had what to go to the board. Yeah. And was uh, and appeared to be crazy and acted crazy yeah. and said I was crazy. They'd give you a crazy 4-H. And did they? And, and they did. You're a they fucking did. genius, dude. That is not. Well, I w- that's the least crazy thing I that you could do. I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna go kill innocent no, Vietnamese people. No, I've never heard. I've heard a lot of people, a lot of stories about the draft, but I've never heard anybody <laughs> take drugs. To oh, yeah. manipulate the situation. That well, that so, was it was so one smart. of the things people talked about back oh. then. You know, just be crazy, act crazy. It was kind of like Alice's Restaurant. I have one follow-up story to that because, you know, my mind works in mysterious ways, as does yours. I was so traumatized by the things that would happen in, in, throughout that period. And by 71, 72, I remember Altamont happened with the stones and, mm-hmm. and, right. and all kinds of nasty stuff and Manson and all that yeah. stuff. And I was in downtown Cleveland. And um, I just wanted to get out. Caught up in a in terrible political situation, terrible social situation. I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I was very confused. I'm sure drugs and alcohol had something to do with it, too. Mm-hmm. So uh, I got married, met a nice girl, got married, and we moved to a farm. How old were you when... This was when I was 24. Okay. So we moved. I wanted to just kind of... It was kind of like, uh, I remember the back to the land thing, Crosby, right. Stills, and Nash, you know, uh, you know Neil Young you know get back to the land right. kind of thing a lot of music was in the background right. so escaped all that stuff and moved to a farm in, in Pennsylvania but uh, as a follow up to my story at that time even the early 70s they had door to door salesmen and you mean like the Fuller Brushman? like the Fuller Brushman. Yeah. and so I'll never forget one day we had this long road dirt road that led to our farmhouse it was a Pennsylvania farm 
really beautiful setting, 130 acres. So this guy pulls up, gets out. He's got this vacuum cleaner in his hand. It comes to the door. And I said, what do you want? He says, well, I'm selling these rainbow vacuum cleaners. That was the yeah. name of the company? The, yeah, the rainbow. And they're really unique. Instead of a bag, they have water in the inside and collects it. The, the air pulls the dirt through the water, and that captures the, the dirt. And it's called the rainbow. And, uh, you know, how much is it? Well, I was, a, I was teaching at the time, and it was like, much more than I could afford. So, but you could buy it on six easy installments. So my wife and I, you know, we were just setting up house and it's like, we don't have a vacuum cleaner. This is pretty cool. You know, six easy installments. Okay. So we signed up. So the guy said, okay, well, I have to check your credit. Who knows how they did before right. computers, right? Yeah. So about a, a week later, the guy came back and said, I'm sorry, you didn't pass. You were 4-H. What's that mean? I was, uh, I, I wasn't worthy because I was not accepted by the military for being crazy. Oh, so obviously, so crazy people cannot. Crazy buy on people time. can't buy on time. Okay. So that was the end. So you fucked yourself that's, on credit. That's, so you that's, that's uh, right. Kill people. That's right. Wow. Right. But I didn't need the rainbow. Oh, so clearly. anyway, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a come around. I know. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I taught for a couple years and then I went into the family business. And you so. said you taught at middle school. Middle school. Yeah. And yeah. Social studies. You, social studies. How was yeah. that working with children back then? Well, I was a child. You I, were how I was twenty five. Yeah, twenty five, twenty six, yeah. and uh, yeah, I was not very responsible and I was not a very good teacher. So. So okay. I like to push that part of, to the side because I was so young. I just did it a couple of years. So you didn't yeah. ruin too many lives. I didn't. Okay. I didn't. <laughs> right. I was very immature, and I was very, I was very confused about life. I yeah. think at that point in my life. When did that stop? Uh, when I moved into the family business, yeah. and uh, it was like a vacuum, and realized I had all this responsibility, and and I could maybe I could make something of myself doing an enterprise, and I proved to be very good at it, and. Um, so that kind of made my chops. And it was more by happenstance than anything else right. because I was very confused what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I still am confused about what I want to be when I grow up, which is why it's so great to retire now. Yeah, well, yeah. there's nothing better than being a child retired. Yes, yes. And I'm returning to all my childhood loves. Isn't that interesting? Could, yes. I mean, it's almost like the stuff is held at bay from us so we could be adults and responsible and do all these things. When, in fact, these are the things we should be doing the whole time. I know, I know. And not wait till you're out of gas, almost, to start living that life that you should have the whole time. Exactly. Yeah, I'm just fortunate I still have a lot of gas. Do you read much? I am a big reader, very big reader. Have you always been? Always, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I took yeah. a break for about 25 years. Oh, really? But on my 50th birthday, I dove in hardcore because right. of Alan Hicks, by the way. Let me ask you this. What single piece of literature or any kind of writing has inspired you? Well, yeah, I think because it was my formative years, you know, reading like the great Gatsby, the classics, right. Gatsby or um, Kesey book right. or, you know, some of those classic books made the biggest impression. Faulkner, The Sound of the Fury. I mean, oh. what an amazing book that was. Right. It's really because those were formative years that they're etched in my brain. Have so, you read anything in the past 20 years that you've been impacted by? You know, actually, there is one book called The Poisonwood Bible, hmm. which is um, King Solver, a brilliant author. It just really struck me as just a great piece of literature, very Faulkner-like. Hmm. It was uh, from four different people's point of view right. and all about the same thing that's going on with their family and uh it's an amazing read huh. so yeah that really has actually in the last 20 years that's stuck 
as far as a great read. Well, what are you so, reading now? Well, actually, I just finished a really great book about the Nez Pierce. Oh, the Indian uh, tribe. Indian tribe and yeah. Chief Joseph and his interaction with um, General Howard and how um, their, the Nez Pierce Wars came about in the late 1800s. And it's really fascinating because the guy was brilliant. And uh, all his efforts to um, save his people and save his land really came to naught. But throughout, he kept amazing dignity and sense of purpose, even until, you know, until he was really, really old. And he fought many battles against the, and all of his family were killed by right. the cavalry. And, you know, it's just an amazing read. Right. It's called Thunder in the Mountains. Mm. Okay. So it just came out. Sounds like it's going to be uh, in a theater near you. We'll see. It's the same old story that you hear told over and over again, well, unfortunately. Well, you think but, the motion picture but, Yeah, yeah. So now you are this dude who has time on his hands, who loves horses, and I, I know that you were very generous at some point years ago, and you invited me to bring my two adorable children out to meet Tommy, your horse, who is no longer with us, but a nice horse, and I think my kids rode him around, uh, little yes. thing over there and some stuff. and right. That was very nice of you, and kids had a good time. But you love horses. Where did oh. that come from? Yeah, well, you know, I was thinking about that on the ride here. I have this dream when I was, it was sort of a, a daydream when I was really young, maybe six, seven, eight, that was ongoing. Yeah. And it was always me riding a black horse. Often it was, I was in the back seat, and my parents were motoring somewhere. You know, as a little kid, you remember your parents would say, go to sleep yeah. in the back seat, and I'd fall asleep, and I would imagine that I, I was on a horseback riding along the car, okay? And I've, I've had that in my head. But growing up with nothing but Westerns in the 50s, right. and, um, you know, that was the morality tale told over and over again. Right. The, and just seeing horses, and I was enthralled with the West, and enthralled with horses and enthralled with, especially growing up the suburbs, you know, who had a horse? Nobody right. had a horse. How could right. you have a horse on concrete? Right. And um, so I've always been enthralled with horses. Actually, some relatives had a little farm in, in Maryland countryside that I would occasionally visit, and they had some ponies, mm-hmm. and I'd beg them to let me ride their ponies right. uh, when I was a kid. And then actually when I graduated college and moved to the, you know, moved to the farm, I bought my first horse. I knew nothing about horses. And actually I barely got to ride because it, there was so much work to do. And I was teaching school and I was raising a family. And I, I had horses and I took care of them, but right. I hardly got to ride. And so when I moved here where everything is so accessible, right. and I mean the mountains, the trails, I decided I'd buy a horse. So I bought Tommy and a little paint. And then uh, most recently, the last couple of years, I bought a what's called an appendix. She's a thoroughbred um, quarter horse mm. mix. And uh, she's been quite a challenge. And we both have had to learn a lot. She was pretty green and pretty nervous and wild. Yeah. And uh, so I've had to, you know, I've gotten lessons and tried to learn a lot more about proper equitation. Right. And uh, yeah, it's been great. I was in a Gymkhana yesterday, my first Gymkhana which was kind of Western-style stuff. It was a competition, and it was barrel racing, pole bending, what they call keyhole, bi-wrangle. I'd never done any of it. It was really exciting and fun. It was just so much fun. We won three ribbons out of five events. Wow. So, yeah, and the other two we were disqualified for, but we won both of those. Why were you disqualified? Because there are these imaginary lines that you can't go beyond Uh or out of. And so we, yeah, we uh, stepped out of, out of line, yeah. But uh, it was it was really fun. Did the horse fun. enjoy it? 
Oh my God. What's the horse's she, name? Bella. Bella. Oh my God. She was just running. I was wow. every, everything I could do to hold on to her. Really? She was just she running was as fast it. as. Oh my God. She was so into it. Uh, I just I just held on for dear life. Cool. Yeah. Where did where did that happen? Uh, I just moved Bella to Rising Hope Ranch, which is the old Ashland Hills stable, which is right off of sixty uh, six. South side of Ashland. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, beautiful stable. Is that anywhere near Equimore? By the way, are you familiar with that? Place? Yeah, I'm familiar with Equimore. Yeah, if you go down the road about four or five miles, you hit Equimore. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a treat to mm. get out there and ride my horse. I love it. That's cool that you get to do that. That's yeah. your childhood thing. Come yeah, through. I know. I know. Is that the same with your painting too? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of get to Where did that get come to. From? Well, I've always liked to draw. And uh, so, well, mostly when I was really young, in my teenage years, it was, uh, you know, rock and roll and girls and and uh, in college it was studies and I never really thought I could make a living doing art. So something I always put off. So so when I retired, I decided to uh, to take up drawing and painting. So I did a couple drawings. And mostly portraiture, because I really like portraiture. Yeah. And they turned out really good, and then I uh, started doing oil painting. I've been <clears> following <throat> you in your paintings, and I'm very impressed. Thank you. Thank and you. I know that you took at least one class. Yeah, with Gabe Lipper. With Gabe yeah. Lipper, mm-hmm. and uh, he's obviously at the top of his game doing yeah. what he does. He's amazing. Yeah, so that's super cool. You're kind of doing and have, it seems like, done what you've wanted to do pretty much throughout your life. Even though you've had difficult and challenging times, you seem to have still, you know, maintained your integrity and dignity and did things the way you wanted to do them. Well, I think most people do that. I think I don't maintain. think that's true. Oh, nope. well, I maybe don't not. think that's true okay. at all. Um, no, I must say that the business career was nothing I really trained for or expected. It was kind of I fell into it because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I was a terrible teacher. I was a terrible student. But I proved to be pretty good at the business world. And so I enjoyed building an organization. It was very stressful. It was very stressful. So if I had to do it all over again, I don't know that I would have followed that course. Right. But I've wound up in a good place by virtue of, uh, I don't know, serendipity, I think. I have a great family, great wife. How many kids do you have? I have four kids. Wow. And And they're all yours from this marriage? No. The first is actually really my stepdaughter, Sierra, Um, but I've had her since she was little. So uh, Did you adopt her? No, I didn't adopt her, but uh, she's been with me since she was like 10. How'd that Well, Trisha and my wife separated and divorced when Sierra was very young. Okay. So I met uh, Trisha in, I guess that was 87 or 88, and we got a home and moved together, and Sierra was little, so she's been with me. She's a lovely Uh, woman. Yeah, thanks. And then I have three for my first marriage, and they all have very interesting lives. Yeah, what are they and doing? Let's see. Amanda married a Frenchman. Oh. She has a doctorate. She's a How PhD, she? and she's 40. She has okay. a doctorate in volcanology. What is that? <laughs> uh, volcanoes. Okay. But uh, it's really her expertise is geothermal energy. Oh, okay. So uh, I had a wonderful time once visiting her in Alaska when she was at University of Fairbanks, traveling around looking for places to drill for geothermal activity. Right. Fun. Um, I'll never forget that. But then in her world travels, she met a Frenchman who is a world-famous fencer. And actually, he's the Olympic coach to the American fencing team. But they have a, a chateau and vineyard in in Bordeaux, France. Oh, that sounds very and nice. It is. Do and, they have and children? Two, two lovely grandchildren, oh, so yes. Beautiful. Do you and ever go to visit them there? Yes, I do. Oh, I do. do. And so that's Amanda. And then uh, 
Katie is in Portland. They're like urban farmers. What is that? <laughs> well, Matt has some gardens yeah. that uh, he has memberships to. Yeah. And he grows vegetables. Like a community garden? Community garden, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And uh, Katie started a nonprofit, which is called the, the Portland Fruit Tree Project. And what do, what do they do? They uh, pick and glean fruit from all around the city from people yeah. that have you know fruit trees. Oh, okay. And then donate them to uh, the needy. Oh, cool. How old is she? So she is 38, and uh, she has two lovely children. Okay, so we're up to and, four. Uh, yep. yep. And then Sierra is here in town. And uh, and Ashlyn, she's a nurse. She has two kids. Oh, they're six. And and, and uh, my son Evan is in uh, San Francisco, and he's a glass blower. Oh, how old is he? And thirty six. He does that for a living. He does that for a living. Cool. Yes, yes. So he's an artist, struggle, he, a struggling artist. Yeah. Yep. Who isn't? I mean, at some point, I mean, you have yeah. to. Isn't that kind of part of being an artist? Yes, definitely. It, it, yeah. If you take away the struggle, are you still an artist? <laughs> I don't know. I don't I'm know. just saying. There's yeah, some I think you're right. Kind of motivation yeah. there behind the difficulty. Yeah. I mean, depending on the degree of difficulty, of course. Mm-hmm. So now, what's your typical day like? Oh, geez, I am so lazy. Well, that's good. Uh, what time do you get up? <laughs> well, my dog wakes me up at six thirty. Oh, that every bastard. day, six to six thirty. She whines. I got to go take her for a walk. I got to feed her. Yeah, that's what you and, get. Yeah, and then I have a really uh, stressful time. I have to read the paper oh. from front to back. Yeah, and it, unfortunately, is that lying fake news New York Times I read every day. Oh yeah, and Those liars. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so then I usually go to the gym. Yeah. And then I come home. Where do you go to the gym? The Y? At the Y, yeah. yeah. it's a good place. And uh, I was coming back and usually playing tennis. Oh. Um, but my back's been really hurting me a bit these last couple of months. So instead, I usually go riding. And uh, which doesn't, hurt, back, it doesn't hurt my back as much. Oh, I don't understand it. I think it's because it's more straightforward movement, not quite well, you the actually, twisting. Yeah, and you actually Doesn't... have to have some reasonable posture when you're operating that vehicle, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I, I mean, know. you're sitting up straight. Yeah, yeah. Correctly, yeah, yeah. right? But you're off the seat. If you're trotting, you're off the seat a lot. You Are know? you bouncing? Yeah, yeah. no, you're, I... you're posting. You're oh, you're standing up a little bit. Yeah, you're oh, posting oh, a lot. Oh. Yeah, you don't really. Oh. But yeah, I mean, you are bouncing around if you're in a canner or... Yeah. You know, that kind yeah, of I don't thing. like that stuff. Yeah. I like one thing on a horse. <laughs> Let's go fast. The last time I rode a horse, I brought the horse back sweating. They were pissed at me. Oh, wow. Because I got that horse to kick some... I love speed, man. Yeah, I, I get it. I got horse going. I get it. And by the time I got back, they were really pissed oh, at me. Was it a rent-a-horse? Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, I killed the horse before I brought it back. Good for you. Yeah, I like the speed part myself. No, it's fun. Yeah. It was very exciting. You know, that's why I like to ride motorcycles. It's part of the reason I go to Thailand. Gotcha. So your life's good. And is Trish uh, doing better with her symptoms? These she days? is. She handles it really well. Um, she has some medication she takes that keeps things under control a bit. Yeah. She seems pretty content. And so she's a great try- lady. What do you guys do together? Watch a lot of movies. Yeah. We go out to dinner yeah. occasionally. Um, we travel. I have a van that I got that allows her to travel. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, we do some traveling, but it's mostly just, you know, the national parks. Well, that's local. cool, though, that you yeah. can drive from, you yeah. know, tip to stern and in your vehicle and, and still give her some level of comfort. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a neat vehicle. It's one of those um, sprinter vans. Oh, yeah, but, but it's decked out. I have a bathroom, and it has a bed. And Is Alan coming in this thing with you? Well, he won't go in it. with It's really okay. a two-person vehicle. I see. It's, a, it's not that big. But it's a sleeper, but, right? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Does we'll, it have a we'll, kitchen? It does. It has a huh. little kitchen. Yep. Huh. Got yeah. a microwave? It's got a microwave. TV? It's got, 
TV. Oh, yes, wow. has it all. You're good to has go. I know. How long I know. you had that? Uh, I got it about four years ago and realized Trisha, she wouldn't fly. Right. And it's just hard for her to go anywhere because she really needs to be able to lay down and she needs right. access to a bathroom. So, well, you've no, been a good caretaker, a, yeah? Yeah, yeah. She takes care of me and I take care of her. Cool. Yeah. It's great to see you. And yeah. you've been one of my favorite people in town, Jimmy. I know we haven't oh, spent thanks. a lot of time uh, together, but you're very easy to be around. You seem like a nice guy. I, I like how you've run your business. You actually included me in your award-winning... Oh, that's right. On which this. was... I was like Caesar, right? <laughs> that's Wasn't right. I? You were great. Right. Smoking weed and yeah, sitting on yeah. the fucking throne. You were. You were great. You were riding your uh, horse, and right. I had beautiful women around me. And Man. It was a good... Was that the 4th of July? That was the 4th parade? of July, yeah. yeah. What year was that? Uh, that was Spartacus. Yes. Yes. Uh, Spartacus was probably five years ago. Okay. Yeah. So I in, in my box of stuff, I still have my little ribbon... And uh, it, yeah, was was a, it was a times. great day. All right, Jimmy, enjoy the Thanks rest of the Thanks for the coffee. It was oh, great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. That. All right, cheers. Okay. Baby. See you. All right. Bye. Well, that's the show. Hope you enjoyed it. I had a good time, as always. Great to catch up a little bit with mom and dad. And uh, it was great to talk to uh, Patrick. Uh, Patrick and I and Scotty piled around for a few years back in the mid-90s before I headed out to San Francisco. And Scotty was a very special friend. He left us early, but he lived big, huge, gigantic. He was one of the coolest dudes I ever met in my life. Uh, I'm honored to have uh, traveled uh, a little bit with him through life. It was great to talk to uh, Ruth Kennedy from the Equimore Foundation and uh, really find out what that is all about and, and all the work that they're doing, uh, which is a shame, frankly. But, you know, until we do better with ourselves, we are going to treat the others uh, poorly as well. And uh, it was great to uh, chat with Jimmy. Jimmy's a cool cat here at Ashland. It's really fascinating to hear about his uh time in Baltimore during uh, the Civil Rights Movement and, and that whole explosion of music. Good show, man. Fun show. Good show, fun show. Fun show, good show. And uh, I hope everything's good with you. Citizen 44 with Mark Ehrensberg on iTunes and CastBox for you Android ears. I got a Citizen44.com site up now and uh, got Alexander helping me out with some things. So uh, the show is getting... Uh, more showy okay love to you and all that you do word your mother's uncle to find out more about the equimore foundation and sanctuary here in ashland oregon and what you can do potentially uh, check them out at uh, equimore.org that's equimore.org e-q-u-a-m-o-r-e dot org Whatever you're doing is not working, 
There's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44.